So we have skipped ahead several chapters, as you may have noticed, because in between, what we basically have is after they destroy the five kings and their peoples, what we basically have is a division of the land, and there are several chapters describing the geographic boundaries allotted to each tribe. And so we've skipped over that portion of text, and we pick up with the narrative at Joshua 22. The land has been conquered. The land has been divided. Every tribe has received its allotment. And so Joshua says to the two and a half tribes whose allotment had been on the east of the Jordan, you've kept your word. You came and fought with us. Now you can go home. Remember, for us, many months ago, we looked at that section where the two and a half tribes said, give us our land on the east of the Jordan River. And Moses was angry and he said, well, you're going to stop here while the rest of us cross the Jordan and go fight west of the Jordan? And they said, no, no, you misunderstood us. We'll go across with you and fight until all the land's conquered. But then once it's conquered, just let us come back east of the Jordan and settle here. And that was agreed upon. That was the arrangement. So now Joshua acknowledges, you've kept your word. They crossed over west of the Jordan with the other nine and a half tribes, conquered that whole land. And now the two and a half tribes are being sent home. When they get back to their side on the east of the Jordan, they build an altar, which is a replica of the altar in the tabernacle. And this is the whole issue that comes up in Joshua chapter 22. There is some conflict here. The application of tonight's passage is not going to be, don't go build an altar on the other side of the river. Obviously, we can see that the specifics differ very much from our situation, and so it's not a really direct one-to-one -one correspondence. Where we will go with this tonight is to see some of the similar heart dynamics that are at play in this passage, and some of the theological truths that are at play in this passage, being very much relevant to our lives today in that we experience many of the same heart dynamics and in that the same theological truths which are latent in this passage continue to be relevant to us today. So let us begin with this consideration. The nine and a half tribes from the west side of the Jordan River misunderstand the intentions of the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan River. Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh return to the east side of the Jordan River and build an altar. That's in 22.10, Joshua 22.10. When they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. Now, the assumption of the nine and a half tribes was that what the two and a half tribes were doing was illegitimate. <clears throat> in that they were creating their own place of sacrifice when God had said way back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices 
etc. When the temple was built, that place was the temple in Jerusalem. But before the temple was built, that place was the tabernacle, which was on the west side of the Jordan River. The assumption was, of the nine and a half tribes, the assumption was that the two and a half tribes were building an altar of convenience, appointing for themselves a place to worship, which would be more convenient for them than having to cross over to the west side of the Jordan River and go all the way to the tabernacle and worship at the place the Lord appointed. The nine and a half tribes assumed that the two and a half were trying to make a more convenient place to worship, which had not been authorized by the Lord. Now, to their credit, the nine and a half tribes were prepared to deal severely with this perceived breach of faith. They're prepared to go to war against the two and a half tribes to root out this impurity or this perceived impurity from Israel. And this is an honorable thing. You may recall way back in Exodus 32, when Moses is up on Mount Sinai and the people make a golden calf. Moses comes down and it says, Moses saw that the people had broken loose. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. This was right. This was the right response in Exodus 32. When the people had begun to worship the golden calf, the right response was that men would strap on their swords and go and kill the idolaters. This this was the manner in which it was to be dealt with. This was not Moses' harebrained idea. This was implicitly the Lord's idea with His sanction. And He approvingly mentions the Levites much later in Deuteronomy chapter 33. And he, he, he blesses them. And he says, the, the good quality about Levi for which they're being blessed. He says, they said, he said of his mother and father, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children. This is commended. This is a, that's a reference back to the incident with the golden calf. It's commended that these men prioritize the Lord above all. And they were prepared to kill even their kinsmen over the breach of faith that happened in the incident of the golden calf. Also, you'll remember in Numbers chapter 25, there was this plot to seduce the men of Israel into idolatry through the Moabite women seducing them into sexual relations. And so there is this adultery and idolatry together at Peor. And behold, Numbers 25 and verse 6 says, One of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family. 
in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Again, the zeal is commended, and the Lord stops the plague of Israel because of the zeal of Phinehas in putting to death those who had broken faith with Yahweh. Now, in Joshua 22, it's interesting, Phinehas appears again. The same guy who had stabbed the woman and the man through their belly with the spear in Numbers 25, he's one of the ringleaders of this attempt to go to war with the two and a half tribes. In verse 13 of Joshua 22, we read that the people of Israel said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phileas, pardon me, Phineas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, and so on and so forth. But Phineas is at the helm. This man who is zealous for the purity of the worship of Yahweh appears on the scene again. And he has seen that when the people worship the golden calf, we're to kill the idolaters. He's seen that when the people go into idolatry and adultery with the women of Moab, we're to kill the idolaters. So here he sees them building this altar, and Phineas is ready to take up arms again. <clears throat> Some applications here. As I said, it is good and it is right to have ultimate allegiance to God. And if lines must be drawn where your loved, loved ones and your kinsmen are on one side and God is on the other side, to be a faithful Christian, you must line up on God's side. That means sometimes we will oppose even our own spouse. Sometimes it means we will oppose even our children. We will oppose even our parents. I know many of you last year, including myself, we had some conflict with family members because Sunday was December 25th. And we said, look, we're going to church. And our family members couldn't understand. It's Christmas. It's a day for family. And we said, no, first and foremost, it's a day for the Lord. And there was conflict there. When situations like that arise where you can't do both, you need to make the choice to be on the Lord's side with respect to the things that He's commanded and do what's right and line up on God's side even if it means that your loved ones, your spouse, your children, your parents, whoever is on the other side. Line up on God's side. But don't forget that the zeal here was, was based on a misunderstanding. This whole conflict was based on a misunderstanding. Remember, let every man be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Really, it's good that they sent a delegation here, first of all. They sent a delegation rather than immediately going over to take up arms. So that's good, and that's respectable, and that's commendable. But they didn't go over and ask, have we misunderstood this situation? 
they went over and said, what is this breach of faith? The assumption was that there had been a breach of faith as opposed to seeking to understand and clarify the intentions before passing judgment. <laughs> Let us learn to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, rather than assuming that we know what's going on and coming out with guns blazing in any perceived situation where we feel that we need to confront someone about something. Thirdly, Phineas's zeal was correct in Numbers 25. But Phineas's zeal was misguided here in Joshua 22. Sometimes what happens is when someone fights a good and noble battle and receives the commendation of the Lord for it and the commendation of other men for it, pretty soon he seeks that commendation again by means of fighting another battle. And he takes on the identity of warrior. He takes that mantle upon himself and he looks for a holy war at every opportunity. We see sometimes a situation where perhaps a man takes a stand doctrinally, perhaps a pastor takes a stand doctrinally and contends for the truth, and it's right in the sight of God, and his church applauds him for it. But something unhealthy happens in that he begins to consider himself The, let me say the commander of the Lord's army or something like this and starts to take upon himself the mantle of being the, the Lord protector of the doctrine of the church in, in every instance and he assumes because he was right before he's going to be right again and in fact in every case simply because at one time he was correct and fought a good battle note here that Phineas was wrong that he actually was misguided because he misunderstood the situation and, and was actually not on the right track in this situation. He even acknowledges his own error in Joshua 22 and verse 31. Phineas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. He's acknowledging that uh, if, they had, if they had committed a breach of faith, they would have come under the Lord's condemnation. But also, if the people of the nine and a half tribes had gone to war unjustly against the two and a half tribes, that also would have been displeasing to the Lord. So this whole situation was diffused and resolved by the two and a half tribes. And Phineas recognizes that the nine and a half tribes were misguided and wrong, and a war has been prevented by the wise and prudent answer of the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh. So let us not assume, because we've been right one time in taking a stand, that therefore we're right every time in taking a stand. And our zeal, though it may be right and commendable in one situation, may not be right and commendable in another situation and might be predicated on a misunderstanding. So again, let us be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. <clears throat> next point here, next consideration. The two and a half tribes clarified. This altar that was built was symbolic 
Not functional. There was no breach of faith intended. They did not intend to worship another god, nor did they intend to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices on it. It says in, or they say in Joshua 22 and verse 22, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. So they say this wasn't for idolatry, to worship a different God. Then they go on to say, or if we did so, to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. So they're saying it wasn't to worship a different God other than the Lord, nor was it to worship the Lord in an inappropriate manner against the manner in which he's prescribed. You've misunderstood us. We're not trying to turn away from the Lord, nor are we trying to worship the Lord improperly and illegitimately. This is the, this is the clarification that they make. And they confirm this by an oath, incidentally. The, the mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. May the Lord himself take vengeance if this, is, if this is not true. This is an example that we see biblically where people call on the Lord as witness and call down imprecations upon themselves if they're not telling the truth. Which is just an incidental point of application. One of the reasons why our 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith allows for lawful oaths and vows under certain circumstances in moments of weight and gravity. So the two and a half tribes clarified. As I said, this prevents all-out war and so on and so forth. But they explain their rationale for building this altar. It wasn't for turning away from the Lord, nor was it to worship the Lord improperly. They explain their rationale. It's so that in future generations, the people on the west side of the Jordan will not say, well, we're the true people of God on the west side of the Jordan, and the people on the east side have no share in the Lord. After all, look, the Jordan River's there as a natural boundary between us and them, which makes us, us and them. And the east, the people in the east really have no share in our God. The two and a half tribes correctly perceive a demographic, or pardon me, not a demographic, a dynamic in the sinful heart. The two and a half tribes correctly perceive a dynamic in the sinful heart in which geographic nearness, being close together, is perceived as unity and vice versa where being in a different location is perceived as disunity. Let me give you a few examples of this in the real world, and then let me turn you to a New Testament passage which also shows this same dynamic at play. Consider, for example, we think of everyone in this church building as us. We think of people in other church buildings sometimes as them. Especially if the sign that they hang on the church building does not say Baptist or Reformed. We begin to think about it like, well, there's us and there's them. 
we're in this church building, they're in that church building, and we are not one people because we're here in this church building and they're there in that church building. Consider brethren in Christ around the world and how easy it is to forget that we are being persecuted and killed for the faith. We think, right, they are being persecuted and killed for the faith. We are not. Now, obviously there's some truth in that in the sense that here in Barbados, this subset of Christians are not. But there is another very real sense in which we are because we includes all of us around the world. But we don't tend to think that way. We tend to think of the people in our building are our people. The people in our country are our people. The people in other countries and other buildings are other people, other groups. Luke chapter 9 and verse 49 gives us another illustration of, of this principle. Jesus is walking with his disciples and John says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him. Because he does not follow with us. When we go for a walk, he's not there. When we sit down to have a meal, he's not there. We are not part of the same immediate group. So, since he doesn't follow with us, well, we figured we'd try to stop him from casting out these demons in your name. You see that? Someone, someone casting out demons in Jesus' name. But the assumption is because he's not part of this group, this immediate group, he's not part of us. Jesus says, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Jesus implicitly approves of this other guy who was not with the immediate group of disciples and implicitly acknowledges that he is actually on team Jesus, even though he does not follow with us. So there is this tendency in the sinful human heart to get tribalistic, to make unnecessary divisions, draw unnecessary lines, resulting in situations of us and them based on proximity, based on geography, who is near us in the same building, in the same city, in the same region, the same country, etc., etc., in our group, right? The two and a half tribes recognized that that dynamic was likely to play out in future generations by the nine and a half tribes on the west of the Jordan not acknowledging the two and a half tribes on the east of the Jordan as legitimate because there was a river dividing and they're not with them. Right? Therefore, they build this altar of witness. Which leads us to a point of application that will also introduce the next point of our sermon. 
Here's the point of application. Our natural affinity for those nearby is not always right. Our natural affinity for those nearby is not always right. Now, admittedly, there would be something wrong if you were unable to distinguish between your children and the children you see walking to school on a morning as you drive around. We should be able to rightly distinguish the members of our own household. We should be able to rightly distinguish the members of our own church and so on and so forth from those further afield. So I'm not saying that we indiscriminately love everybody, serve everybody, prioritize everybody in exactly the same way. There is a certain natural responsibility that we have, a moral proximity, and a, a kinship, an affinity by God's design with people in a particular locale with whom we stand in a particular relationship. I'm not trying to negate that entirely. But this proclivity that we have to prioritize those who are nearby and consider those who are nearby us and to consider people who are further afield as them is not always right. And this is the next point of the sermon that I want to draw out. In this passage, Joshua 22, the people of God are the whole 12 tribes. The people of God are the whole 12 tribes. God didn't reduce the number of people who comprise the nation of Israel down to nine and a half tribes when he allotted two and a half tribes an inheritance on the east. God didn't change his mind, change the number, reduce the number of tribes that comprised the nation. There were still 12. There were objectively 12 because by God's appointment, there were 12. God set the parameters of who should be included in and thought of as the people of Israel. And objectively then, because God set the parameters, those are the parameters. The people of God are the whole 12 tribes. The two and a half tribes were merely trying to safeguard that theological truth. They were trying to make sure that they did not lose their place among the people of Israel. That they were not excluded from among the people of Israel in future years and generations. They were simply trying to retain their seat at the table. Here's the theological principle. The people of God in the Old Testament are the whole 12 tribes of Israel. Now by way of application, the whole church in this day and age, the whole church is the people of God. This is not rocket science. But because of the dynamics of our hearts, sometimes this theological truth is in jeopardy. The whole people of God is all Christians, the whole church. Though separated by waters, like seas, or rivers, like the Jordan, or though separated by walls, 
meeting in different buildings. We know Josh and Heidi are going back to the United States. They're part of a denomination called the RPCNA, the Foreign Presbyterian Church of North America. Listen, that's not them. That's us. It's not, it's not us, the Bajans, and them, the Americans, or us, the Baptists, and them, the Reformed Presbyterians. The RPCNA's success is our success. Because we're all Christians, the people of God. Likewise, Imre and Christina, part of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Central and Eastern Europe. They will go from here back home to Hungary. But it's not us and them. It's all us. We are all the church. We are all the people of God. Their success is our success. Our success is their success. When we hear about revival happening in another country, if, if we start to hear about revival breaking out in Hungary, we should say, good, we are seeing God bless us. We are seeing God help us. If we heard about revival breaking out among the RPCNA churches in the U.S., good, God is blessing us. God is helping us. But let me push this a step further. It's not just other Reformed denominations. It's all churches that are genuine churches. All churches that preach the gospel. Look, if the Methodists, Pentecostals, started to have revival in their midst, we should not say, why is the Lord blessing them and not blessing us? We should likewise say, the Lord is blessing us. The Lord is building up His church. We, the church, are God's people. We meet in different countries. We meet in different buildings. Perhaps even we are different tribes. Right? Let's, let's admit that. There's the tribe of Reuben. There's the tribe of Gad. There's the tribe of Naphtali. There's the tribe of Simeon. The tribe of Simeon is not the tribe of Dan. The tribe of Naphtali is not the tribe of Gad. And there are distinctions and subdivisions within the whole people of Israel. And likewise, within the church, we recognize the Reformed Baptists are not the Reformed Presbyterians. And the Reformed Presbyterians are not the Pentecostals and so on and so forth. There are distinctions and whatnot. But it's all us. We are the people of God. We are God's people. The boundaries have been set by God. You realize the boundaries of the church, the parameters of the church have been set by God. And as God said in the Old Testament, all 12 tribes comprise the people of Israel. In this day and age, God has said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is one body just as the body is one and as many members and all the members of the body though many are one body so it is with Christ for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body Jews or Greeks 
slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Listen, if somebody has called upon the name of Jesus and is trusting Him alone for salvation, has turned away from their own works, turned away from the hope of any other Savior, and have thrown themselves on the mercy of Christ, He is our brother. He is in the church. He is God's person. And we together are God's people. We can't say because He does not follow with us. Let's try to stop Him. As John said of this guy casting out demons in Jesus' name. Because He did not follow with them. Though He live on the other side of the Jordan River. Let us not say you have no share in the Lord. Because you're on the other side of the water. Let us not do that with our church walls. Because he's not in this building. Because he does not belong to this Reformed Baptist Church. He has no share in the Lord. Because he worships in a different building. In a different tribe, as it were. Among the twelve tribes of the church, so to speak. Because he's not with us geographically nearby let us not assume that he does not belong to the people of God the boundaries of the church exclude those who are trusting in themselves that they are righteous the boundaries of the church exclude those who worship false gods the boundaries of the church exclude those who profess that there is no God at all. The boundaries of the church exclude hypocrites who give lip service to Christ Jesus. But they are workers of lawlessness whom he has never known. But the boundaries of the church include believers from every tribe and language and people and nation across every body of water on the other side of every Jordan River in this earth. And in every church building where Christ is preached, in every denomination, the Reformed, the Non-Reformed, the Baptists, Presbyterians, the Pentecostals, as our beloved Prime Minister would say, Aloe is one. <laughs> the boundaries of the church are set by God. And we need to recognize the largeness, the comprehensiveness of the parameters that God has set. And recognize that simply because people are not with us or near us, that it does not therefore exclude them from being numbered among God's people. This was the concern that an attitude like this would develop among the nine and a half tribes, which is why the two and a half tribes built an altar 
they invented and built a symbol to remind the nine and a half tribes and to remind themselves that they were all together one people. We don't have to invent a symbol. Christ has given us one. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is a symbol given to us by Christ himself to remind us that we are all one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope, so on and so forth. Jesus did not shed his blood and have his body broken simply for the few dozen people in this room tonight. Jesus' Jesus' body was not broken and his blood was not shed merely for the Barbadian church. Jesus' body was not broken and his blood shed merely for the Reformed. Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for all whom in love the Father predestined to be adopted as sons, that they might be holy and blameless in his sight. All who have been made to partake of one spirit, all who belong to that great multitude so large that John saw in his vision a multitude so large that no one could count. Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for each and every individual one of them and for all of us as a whole. So that whoever calls on his name would be saved. And as one of my seminary professors said, I cannot cut myself off from someone to whom Christ has bound himself. Think about that. That's a profound idea. If Jesus has shed his blood, if his body was broken for someone, he is your brother. And if Jesus has, has shed his blood and if his body was broken for this person and, you, and he's not your brother, well then implicitly that would mean you have no share in Christ. You cannot cut yourself off from one to whom Christ has bound himself. I'm not calling for acceptance of false gospels false professors, hypocrites. I'm not trying to do away with church discipline. I'm not trying to negate the need for discernment, good judgment, prudence, so on and so forth. But I am trying to press on us that there is this dynamic latent in the human heart which will tend 
to think of those in our proximity as us and those further afield as them. And that breeds unnecessary divisions in the church. And it reduces the 12 tribes of the church down to nine and a half, which is a great sin. Because if there are people who are truly God's people, may we never say, may we never say to them, as the tribes east of the Jordan were afraid that it would be said to them, you have no portion in the Lord. May we never look at a denomination that is a denomination comprised of true believers. Say you have no portion in the Lord just because they're not our denomination. May we never look at believers in this area or that area and say you have no portion in the Lord. We have to remember the global unity, the oneness of the body of Christ, the universal church. We have to give some expression to the fact that there is one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one spirit, so on and so forth. As we eat and as we drink at the communion table then, we celebrate communion with Christ. But as I repeat every so often to you, we also celebrate communion with one another. And not just with one another who are in the room that very day, but we eat and we drink with the global church. We eat and we drink with the American brethren, the Hungarian brethren. We eat and we drink with the persecuted brethren. We eat and we drink with the 12 tribes of the church, as it were. That is the symbol that we all belong to Christ, that we all have a portion in Him. We don't have to build an altar to remind ourselves. Christ has given us a symbol already of that unity, that oneness. Mary and Christina, Josh and Heidi, we know that you will not be here next Sunday. And we love you and we will remember our time with you here when you followed with us for a brief period of time. But when you go from here and you no longer follow with us, so to speak, when we're no longer geographically in the same place, when, when there are waters between us, like the Jordan was between the nine and a half and the two and a half. When we worship in different church buildings, and you're no longer within these walls, but within other walls. We will eat and we will drink from the communion table in future weeks, all of us. You will eat and you will drink from the communion table. You will eat and drink from the communion table. We will. And as we eat and as we drink, we may remember the communion that we have with Christ, but also the communion we have with one another. And stateside as you partake, you may remember the oneness that you have with us. As you eat and as you drink in Hungary, you may remember the oneness that you have with us. 
And likewise, we may remember the oneness that we have with these brothers and sisters. We may remember and think about the global church. Let us take it a step further. Let us remember as we eat and as we drink next Sunday, the oneness that we have with all true gospel-believing brothers and sisters here in Barbados, irrespective of denomination. It's easy in the case of beloved and like-minded brethren who think like us and worship like us and act like us in so many ways. We share this common set of Reformed convictions. It's harder sometimes when the doctrinal alignment is not quite so close. When the, the manner and the, the mode of living out the Christian faith and practice is not quite so close. But it is still objectively true. All true brothers and sisters here in Barbados, irrespective of denomination, are our brothers and sisters. So let us make sure that we are a church that yes, we're discerning, yes, we don't put up with false gospels, false professors, we continue to practice church discipline, etc., etc. But where we find true churches, where we find true brothers, true sisters, let us never say you have no portion in the Lord simply because you live on the other side of the Jordan, so to speak. Simply because, as the Apostle John said, you don't follow with us. Whoever is not against us is for us, as Jesus said. And God has established the parameters of the church. Let us continue to be Reformed Baptists and live out our convictions. But let us make sure that we have a proper sense of the universal church. Let us make sure that we have a proper sense of the global church. And practice a proper charity, a proper ecumenical spirit, a proper Catholicity. That we would be warm-hearted, kind, loving, peaceable, understanding of our brothers and sisters in different denominations and around the world. And let us guard against the tribalism, which is so very possible. We've seen it so many times play out. I'm sure in our various experiences. Let us guard against the tribalism which unnecessarily divides the church into us and them.